1: And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day
0: returns. This podcast is a Royfield Field-Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
2: All right. Yeah, I know. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is
0: Grand
1: Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John.
3: And I'm Barbara. And this week we're talking about one of the biggest stories in the world today, the urbanisation of China.
4: is uh, what I call the China's new city building movement, which pretty much started. Um, like we pretty much got to start around year two thousand um, with the beginning of the Go West initiative, which was this uh, massive uh, government project to develop the inland cities of China. Now, what's confusing about this is that they can build a downtown area really, really quickly—five years from like to the farms and villages to, to having like you know an array of sixty skyscrapers, right?
1: So, I have a confession at the start of this, which is um I've never actually been to china uh, I've never got near it the furthest east i've gone is is dubai, i think um which is a whole a whole different podcast
3: yep. <laughs> but
1: but you've been you lived there for a short time, didn't you
3: yes, so i um I had a slightly strange experience of China compared to other people in that I didn't go on a holiday and then go to lots of cool Chinese cities. I went and I lived in Shanghai for about two and a half months um and worked there and stuff so um, it was a slightly bizarre thing where I just went and lived in this massive, massive city and was like, whoa, <laughs> this is like nowhere I've ever been before. London definitely isn't like this. Um,
1: so, so tell us about Shanghai. How did, it, how did it differ from your your experience of cities um, before?
3: It's absolutely enormous. It's kind of... It, something I really liked about it is that it's a bit like New York in that it's a very specific... It's done basically on a grid system. It might not always look like that on a map, but the way the road signs are done is kind of very clear because you have roads which have west and east or else north and south. And then on every single sign, it will tell you kind of which numbers are which way. And there's this kind of acknowledgement in the planning of the city that it's so huge that <laughs> you need kind of all kinds of help to kind of navigate it. But it is, it's kind of, is it, a lot of it is very brand new. So on one side of the river is something called the Bund, which is um, a kind of a strange panorama of very European looking buildings, which were built by European countries um in in Shanghai while they were there um and then across the river you have this kind of completely different view which is do these insane huge skyscrapers so there's one called which people call the bottle opener which has a, a gap up halfway up just because why not um and then there's something called the pearl of the orient which is this huge basically a satellite tower with a museum in the basement which again is must be much i don't know twice as tall as the shard or something um and again and this entire financial district was built on marshland in the space of about 10 years i think um so yeah the whole thing when you come from london where things were kind of gradually built mostly a really long time ago sometimes there's a new skyscraper it's not very tall (laughs) it takes Mm. some ages it's not very good Uh, it's just a completely different scale of development
1: i mean i think that's the sort of the, the one of the biggest stories in in the sort of world of of cities is the, uh, the rate of urbanisation in China. I mean, there's the stat you hear a lot, that particularly if you read City Metric, that, you know, in, they think, 2008, for the first time in history, a majority of the world's population lived in cities. Well, the rapid urbanisation of China is a pretty big part of that. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. So as recently as, as, you know, the 1960s, it was something like a fifth of the Chinese population were living in cities, and everyone else was basically on a farm somewhere. Um, and then... Yeah, you know, since since the 60s, that's just totally flipped over. And sometime in the last couple of years now, a majority of the Chinese population is, is urban. And because China is, you know, someone like a fifth of the world's population in one country, that's the thing that's really, tr- that's had the biggest impact on the urbanization of humanity as a whole, I think.
3: Yeah. And I think that also, I mean, this is partly to do with obviously the sheer scale of the country. But I mean, in Britain, when we think about urbanization, we think of People moving to urban centres which already exist and there aren't that many of them and people again gravitate more towards London sometimes than to smaller northern cities or whatever. In China what this means is this swelling of cities that you've never heard of um, which kind of double in size because people move from their relatively rural area nearby to this urban, what they think of as an urban centre but which in the scale of the number of Chinese cities is kind of relatively insignificant. Mm. But I guess a part of that is I mean, China actually, for a country that seems to be encouraging rapid moving and rapid urbanisation, has very strict rules on where you can and can't move. Um, so I think that actually, in a way, although Beijing and Shanghai are kind of giant super cities, they aren't as huge and sprawling and horrible as they could be, because actually it's quite hard to move to one of those places if you're not from somewhere nearby, because you have to register um, and you effectively would have to get a special work visa in order to move there. And the Chinese government's being a bit more uh, lax on this. It's called hukou, it's like your hukou papers are kind of where you're allowed to live. Um, and they're a little bit more relaxed now, but not really. But you can kind of see the benefit in that slightly when you consider that you're getting loads of quite flourishing cities now rather than just two. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think one of the interesting things about China, which you've already alluded to, is that it's kind of doing urbanisation a different way round to the way we're used to. So generally in, in the West, the city will grow because people move to it.
3: And then in, they realise they need to build more houses and y- panic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Whereas in, in China, they build the cities and then people arrive. Um, but one, one slightly old side effect of that is there's a period where the cities just sit there empty. Um And and they're they're often reported on in the West as, as these things called ghost cities. And we know a guy who literally wrote the book on the subject...
0: Next station is Hu Xing Mai. Fu Mai is a transfer station. Passengers on line two, please prepare to get off.列车在复兴门站停车时间较短，请下车的乘客提前做好准备，抓紧时间下车。谢谢您的合作。
4: Hello, my name is Wade Shepard, I'm the author of Ghost Cities of China, which is a book that chronicles the two and a half years I spent traveling to and living in China's new cities, which is more accurately um, what China's ghost cities are. I first ended up in China in 2005, I was a student at Zhejiang University, and it was around that time when I when I first started uh, stumbling into uh, China's new urban districts and, and cities, and it happened completely by accident. Um, I was working on a project about of all things, uh, China's modern hermit tradition. So I was down in uh, Zhejiang province, out, out in the mountains, um, near, near a small town, a small city called Tiantai. Now near here is, when, is where the Tang Dynasty poet Han Shan um, had his uh, famous hermitage uh, far from the world of dust. Um, so I was going to go and try to find my way out to it and uh, just write a couple stories about that. I actually ended up being of significance about this trip. It um, really wasn't anything to do with Chinese hermits. But when I arrived in Tian Tai, um, rather than making a right at the bus station, I made a left, um, and I found myself within a matter of moments within this entirely new um, urban district. Um, completely new streets, completely new uh, five-story buildings, uh, shop fronts, um, apartments—everything you can imagine um, a small city would have, except for people. Now this was uh, this was around two thousand five, two thousand six. At that time, and this was a few years before the first Ghost City report started coming out in the international media. So I had no idea what I was looking at. Um, I've been traveling the world for about eight years up up to up until that point. Um uh, went to about forty five, fifty different countries and I have never been in a city uh, without people before. So I was a little bit enthused. I was I was quite a bit younger then, probably about twenty five years old or so. And um with a big burst of what you could call maybe immature enthusiasm, I rushed back to uh, my university and uh, I sat down, went, went into my professor's office, and I'm telling him about my new great discovery of this uh, city without people um, outside of Tiantai in Zhejiang province. And the old distinguished uh, Chinese professor just kind of looked at me and he was like, yeah, uh, those places are everywhere. I just uh, completely stole my thunder, right? So I kind of limped out of his office, uh, whatever, and I kind of forgot about it for a couple of months. But later on that summer, I was hitchhiking up in Inner Mongolia. And um, I got a ride into this town called uh, Arlian in uh, Chinese, which uh, this place pretty much only has uh, two things. It has um, a couple giant dinosaurs over the highway leading into town, and it has a border to uh, Mongolia, uh, which is where I was going. But anyway, so I walked out from the highway and into town, and I found myself in another completely new uh, new district uh, without people, um, buildings, streets. And this is kind of in the desert, so it's kind of like sand dunes, kind of like rising up over the abandoned buildings. And if there were tumbleweeds there, there would uh, definitely be tumbleweeds rolling by. Um, and uh, at this point I was like wow this is this is very very interesting so I started looking for these places um after that and it was about as challenging as uh taking a bus out to the outskirts of of pretty much any chinese city getting off and looking and i found that my professor was right um these places really are everywhere okay so the obvious question is like who who is building these things where do they come from is uh what i call the china's new city building movement which pretty much started um like we pretty much got to start around year 2000 um, with the beginning of the Go West initiative, which was this uh, massive uh, government project to develop the inland cities of China. Um, around that time, um, which is um, a little bit after uh, um, a decade or so, decade and a half after reform and opening, in which China started experimenting with building new cities in the east, um, international investment um, um, and export internationally. And then all of a sudden, you had these massive new urban centers. Uh, rising in the east of the country um, very very successful places places like Shenzhen which is a completely new city of uh, skyscrapers and a massive massive city that was built from scratch within within 30 years and then you have like Shanghai and Beijing and Tianjin and these cities of the east that were just racing ahead of the rest of the country and China kind of realized at this point if this uh, this situation continued um, that they were going to have a very, very imbalanced country on the eastern seaboard. You're going to have some of the most futuristic and modern and dynamic cities in the world. And the rest of the country is going to be a backwater. And that's really what the case was around the year 2000. So I started this uh, go west policy, which was pretty much on uh, to speak metaphorically. It was kind of like taking a piece of bread and kind of like spreading peanut butter. Um, over the whole thing from like one side to the other and they wanted to take this uh, kind of spread of urbanization and to kind of push it over the country um, as evenly as possible. So they intentionally started uh, building a massive uh, infrastructural network. Um, we're talking over 12,000 kilometers of high-speed rail line um, and subways. Um, they extended the highway network by 60,000 kilometers and China now has the largest highway network in the world. So they built this frame. Of infrastructure over the entire country. Now at this time they didn't really take uh, population centers into account that much. What they're doing is trying to build this even grid, kind of like providing branches for for, um, various cities and smaller towns to develop along and to give them the possibility of uh, development. And part of this program was also, um, creating massive, um, manufacturing areas, um, logistic zones and building, um, many completely new cities, uh, from scratch. So this pro- this, this initiative was very much backed by the central government. Um, it was, it was basically a government plan. So it was, a. Uh, um, basically um local governments um kind of like working with funds from from the central government to build literally hundreds of new cities, new districts and and literally thousands of of new towns all the way across the country. It's
1: one thing building a new city. how do you actually go and get people to live there? How do you get an economy there? Is that why these so many of these places are standing empty because you just you can't make people move somewhere? mm-hm
4: once, once a once a larger scale new district is um is ready for a population now now this this is one of the things that a lot of foreign journalists really didn't get is that new city building um it's a long term initiative it's a long term project and most of china's new cities are are built on timelines between twenty and twenty three years now what's confusing about this is that they can build a downtown area really really quickly i mean we're talking about five years from like you know, a place being farms and villages to having like, you know, an array of 60 skyscrapers, right? But these places aren't really ready to be population centers yet at first. Um, they have no schools, they have no hospitals, blah, blah, blah. They don't have you know, proper um, public transportation. Um, but these things come later. When the municipal government is ready to actually populate these new centers, what they do is they start moving in institutions that they have control over. So we're talking about banks. Uh, We're talking about state owned enterprises. We're talking about universities, especially many new districts in China have these massive university towns that bring in, you know, upwards of 100,000 to 250,000 people into these uh, budding new districts. And that kind of like sparks uh, kind of kind of like ignites this flame of uh, economic activity and starts to get the ball rolling. Now, another major factor is that these new districts are often um, well, they're new right? And they're kind of built to be places that people, uh, middle, upper classes, want to be in. So the properties sell very, very quickly, right? Um, for Throughout the whole new city building movement, I mean, pretty much every apartment in you know a larger scale new city or district would sell immediately. Um, so people are buying these places. And then over time, as a new area starts to develop, people gradually start moving out there. Um, these apartments are bought as either long-term investments or without a plan of moving in anytime soon. A lot of times parents would buy properties for their kids. And you can see them sometimes at the housing shows. The kids are really kids. I mean, they're about as high as your knee, right? So nobody's planning on moving into these places uh, anytime soon when they first buy the property. But um, as the new cities kind of develop, um, what you see is more and more people moving in, more and more businesses moving in. But I'll put it this way: in the bigger, more dynamic new cities, you see this. There's many, 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 many smaller ones that aren't as successful and aren't as dynamic. Generally speaking, um, the movement is uh, is is rather successful if given enough time.
1: So when we talk about ghost cities, what we really mean is cities that just aren't quite finished yet.
4: Yeah, what we're talking about is a phase of development that kind of lasts from the time an initial downtown area is built, which is probably around the five-year point to around the 15-year point. Um, So we're talking about like this 10 to 15 year period in between where um, a new city is like kind of in in the middle of the chicken or egg scenario, right? Um, No one's going to move into a new town that has nothing and businesses aren't going to really move into a place that doesn't have people. But um, that gradually works itself out in the larger scale.
0: 三不去
3: I mean, obviously ways making it quite clear that these places are everywhere but the bizarrely the same thing basically happened to me where i kind of went on a day trip to just a random district that I, I found on a map of shanghai and kind of arrived there and was like oh this place isn't really happening yet and there were just these kind of roads that just went off into the distance with these empty houses empty shopping centers it was kind of it was amazing but again i suppose maybe it's filled up now maybe it isn't but um i guess i'll just keep building them
1: yeah i mean you'd imagine that that shanghai is probably a relatively easy place to to fill up compared to a lot of exactly. yeah um we should probably do a quick um geography lessons the wrong phrase because we're probably gonna get stuff wrong but um before i did this job i had no idea of the internal geography of china um and i don't know how widespread that that ignorance is maybe i'm just an idiot but let's 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 talk about that for a second so
3: i think part of it is that actually if you're talking about urbanism you need like realistically, you'd actually want to know quite a lot about Chinese cities, but we don't. In most countries, there's not more than one or maybe two cities that are economically or politically significant. But in China, there are lots with very high populations and quite successful yeah. industry. And so, most people, I think, don't know about most of those places. Yeah.
1: So you do get these these places, you know,
3: bigger than London,
1: but that they're not household names in the way someone like Chicago or Rome or whatever is. Mm-hmm. Well, let's kind of talk about some of, the, uh, some of the biggest ones. So in the in the north, you've got the kind of capital region where you've got Beijing and you've got uh, Tianjin, which is also about 12 million people or something crazy, but that's just the port city for Beijing. Um, and then further south down the coast, you've got Shanghai, which is... Shanghai's the the main business city, right? Which yeah, is, uh, the
3: financial city. And also, I think most Western companies that have a base in China, China definitely have one in Shanghai, if not elsewhere as well. So that's probably the most outward-facing... Place. i think it
1: was kind of the creation of western imperialism wasn't it shanghai yeah it was extent. yeah
3: and in a funny kind of way it's quite satisfying it's now been reclaimed as this massive financial center for china itself mm. um, using all the kind of architecture and infrastructure that, w- that the west kind of brought it, enforced upon it in the
1: yeah yeah i mean the west kind of built shanghai to trade with china and now china uses shanghai to trade with the west so
3: yeah that showed us a nice um, there.
1: And then, and then, uh, much further south, you've got the Pearl River Delta, which is where um, it's Hong Kong, uh, Guangzhou, which, which i just mispronounced, cause, <laughs> but which, which I think is uh, that's Canton. We historically called it, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um,
3: and then Shenzhen as well, and I mean, Lowe's.
1: Yeah, there's something like nine cities that would be you know, in the top five cities in Europe in just this one urban area, which is just crazy. Yeah. Um, but something it's worth pointing out is all these places are in are in the east. Um, they're all quite hard by the, the, the Chinese coast. Um there's a city further inland called Wuhan, which which uh, comes up quite a lot in the history of China. I read quite recently because it's where Mao Zedong is from. Um, but Wuhan is consistently referred to as central China, and they looked at it on a map, and it still looks like it's pretty near the coast because you know historically what historically China was just what is now like the, the, the east and further the country, and you know the the west is basically empty. Um, so, you know, not only do, do they have all these cities and a scale that we, we can't really imagine, they've still got all this land to build on if they wanted to. <laughs> I mean,
3: yeah. And I kind of I think that there is this perhaps belief in the, on the part of the government that the key is to kind of go west and keep that they could maybe replicate that success once or even twice again, kind of, yeah. as you go across the country.
1: I think there are parallels with, with um, someone like the United States, actually, where, where they talk about the Midwest, but really that's still well into the eastern half of the country, but it's just because historically the core of the US was, was in the northeastern corner.
3: Yeah, and that physically that is how you moved mm. as you went across conquering your country, mm. um, and equally the same. I guess you come from the sea, so um, yeah. and that's I how think, it goes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there's something similar with with Russia as well, where, like, you know, Russia looks enormous, but the historic heartland is really just that kind of western corner, and then the rest of it gets conquered during the course of the last thousand years.
3: Yeah, and obviously you don't want to base a lot of your important stuff on somewhere near a border where you could get invaded from, whereas China is kind of strongest at it. It's that
0: time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves
3: So obviously China's urbanism project is kind of quite extreme and quite different from things we've seen elsewhere, but I suppose the real question is whether it works. So whether, you I mean, we talk about these ghost cities and you get these viral images of these empty towns and stuff, but actually the real test of a ghost city is whether it stays one. So is it, was it actually just a pre-city that will be filled with lots of people? Um, and I think Wade has some interesting things to say on that.
4: Hype sells, right? So these crazy stories of these empty new cities in China, that gets page views, that gets readers, that gets viewers, that gets social shares. So hype sells. And when you talk about a country like China, that is like doing um, some things that are just like really incomprehensible. Um, If you just look at it quickly from like a Western perspective, um, it's a goldmine for kind of hype based. Journalism. Now, whether we're talking about China's urbanization movement, China's stock market, China's economy, right? It is a, a, a literal gold mine for journalists who are, you know, looking to get like a lot of readers. Now, what we find is when we look at these stories and we really look into the background of it, we look at we look at the historic context and we kind of try to learn you know, China's system of doing things, which is very different than in the West. You can't just, you know, take a Western model of, of how things work, even the things that we take for granted, right, as, as being just the normal way that things work, kind of like the economy and apply it to China because it's very different. China has its own systems. Um, so when we look at um, China in, in, in context, what we see is something very different than um, kind of like the hype-based uh, um, Western view of reporting on the country. And when we talk about China's ghost cities, uh, the first ghost city report came out in 2009. An Al Jazeera reporter um, who later on got kicked out of China for her hype-based reporting, um, who was the first journalist in, like, uh, at that point, the first journalist in 20 years to be kicked out of the country. Um, that gives you an idea of kind of what she was looking for. Um, she went out to Ordo's Kangbosher, and she called the place a ghost city. Now, the problem is she showed up uh, when, the, when the city it was five years old. You know, she showed up at the five-year point of development, Right. That means that you know uh, Ordos Kongbasher is a completely new city out out in the desert um, that the that the government um, um, decided to build, right? And she showed up at the five-year point in ghost City. Of course, a new city can't. I mean, it's a it's a new city for three hundred thousand people. Of course, you can't build a completely new city and populate it within five years. That's absolutely ridiculous, right? Um, But anyway, she showed up, took pictures of the empty houses. A lot of them weren't even ready for residents yet. I mean, the place is still a construction site, right? And I said, oh, ghost city, you know, this place is built to boost GDP and whatever, right? And that narrative really stuck because in the Western context, you go into a place, you see it's empty of people. You say, oh, this is a failure, right? Oh, there's nobody living here. This place, you know, is defunct. It's like going to bring China to economic ruin. The local officials are just doing it to promote themselves. Which They are to a lot of to to a certain extent, but it's way more complicated than that. There's more to it than that, and now we're at this point where a lot of former ghost cities or places that were called ghost cities by the international media, like Zhongdong in uh, Zhengzhou, um or, or even the Lu a uh, CBD in Shanghai, right when that place was first built, it was deserted well, when it was first appeared to have been built, it was deserted for years And a lot of like Western journals like, oh yeah, China can't fill their cBD whatever China's going to do. But then the local government flipped the switch, moved um, the banks, in. And now the place is like, you know, one of the icons of, you know, global economics. I mean, there's like 99, you know, plus percent um, capacity. It's it's filled up, right? And what we see, we see a lot of these uh, former ghost cities filling up with people, filling up with businesses. And what's interesting is that, you know, the kind of dominant mainstream international media doesn't go back and look at these places. Oh, wow, you know, this this place actually, you know, Filled up with people maybe maybe we were maybe we were wrong here what happened you know this is like this miracle this crazy you know urbanization movement um, actually worked here no they don't do that what they do is they go out and they look for the next ghost city right and like we we have this uh, recent study uh, by by Peking University who used a uh, uh, Baidu big data to kind of like track where people are going in the country and they found uh, kind of like new many many new towns that um not a lot of people were going to right and use that as a metric for saying that these places are ghost cities now that, that's an interesting analysis I'm, I'm friends with one of the guys who who did this study and that's a very very interesting um thing to look at but what they found is that the places that they said are ghost cities are places like Nanguan, Keqing, Yuhong, uh, Saihan um really really I mean these places have like uh uh, another thing in common from being like new districts that don't have many people going to them, is that nobody's ever heard of them before. Right. I mean, I've been traveling in China for a decade. I didn't hear of any of these places. If you talk to most Chinese people. They can't tell you um, where, you know, Kircheng is. Right. I mean, these places are very, very remote, uh, very, very, very marginal. Right. And using them is, is kind of like a lens through which to view China's broader economy is like looking at a place like Ironwood, Michigan, right? To talk about the broader economic well-being of the USA. It's just not a proper metric to make uh, uh, such an analysis. And we look at kind of China's bigger uh, new cities, uh, places like Tianpu, uh new districts of Wuhan, um, um, Nanjing, right? Uh, Shenzhen even. I mean, we're talking about some of the most economically, dyna- economically dynamic cities in the world now. Right. Some of the most successful cities in the world. But a decade ago, about 15 years ago, were populated new districts. So we kind of have this imbalance, uh, an an imbalance analysis when we talk about uh, China's new cities. I mean, here's the thing. Right. A lot of the places that we take for granted in China today as being, you know, vibrant new cities. Um, you know, as I said, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there were ghost cities, right? But you don't get like a, a notification on your mobile phone when you arrive in one. I mean, there's no sign in saying you are now standing on the site of a former ghost city. No, it just looks like normal city, right? It just looks like normal China. And the thing is that, you know, ex-ghost cities aren't news. It's just normal. You see a city full of people and you just expect that it's always been that way sorry to
1: to an extent it is normal isn't it because i mean reading about the history of china it, the the number of um, Beijing was a planned city that was mm-hmm. built as a new capital. Um, I think Nanjing before it. Like so many mm-hmm. of the major cities in China today, are places that you know some governments hundreds of years in the past just decided one day mm-hmm. we are going to put a city here. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's it's just kind of keeping up with that with that tradition,
4: isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's very true. Chang'an, Chengdu. Yeah, we're talking about these ancient, you know, planned cities, and it is very very similar to how China developed all through its history now granted it's on a much broader and crazier scale but it's very similar like i was reading the other day um kind of like this biography of, of joseph joseph needham who wrote this you know the the history of china's like 20 volumes or whatever but there was like a little excerpt um in in this in this in this book um about him reading over kind of like this old you know travel manual from these like portuguese um priests who were in china and they're just marveling at the fact that China was building these very elaborate, very, very expensive, just very, very, at the time, modern bridges out in the middle of nowhere, right? And they just couldn't understand why a country would build such a big, such a grand, grand bridges in the middle of nowhere. And that's really what China is, is still doing, right? Because the idea is kind of viewing the country or, or as far as far as I can, you know, imagine viewing the country as one big uh, organism, right? And if you don't have, you know, the proper connections going through it, I mean, it's not just about building city, uh, building infrastructure and for places that people are, but it's about building, um, building up the country as a whole as, as one big plan. And it's, uh, it's really the same today, you know, what China does and also how, how we view China is, uh, you know, it's, it's very similar. I mean, we still have the same misunderstandings as, uh, you know, Portuguese, you know, well, missionaries did, you know, two three hundred years ago.
1: It's time for the first of a whole new segment, a whole new interactive segment indeed, in which someone out there in the big white world is going to tell us about their city. Uh, this bit is meant to be interactive. The point will be to hear from you lot. But, you know, this week, as it's the first time we've done it, we thought we'd, as a special treat, we thought we'd let you hear from the man behind the curtain. He's our producer,
2: Royful Brown. Hello. My city is Birmingham, which you can probably hear from my South Brummy accent. I've been uh, a Brummy All my life, even though I've spent the last 20 years in London, you can't get the brum out of the boy. What would I change about my hometown? My hometown fundamentally has many things going for it. Um, Racial diversity, uh, general sense of tolerance, and the fact that it doesn't have the braggadocio-ness of the north of England, uh, but it does have um, an identity. But what I would change about my hometown fundamentally are the roads. The roads have scarred Birmingham City. And even though the council have made some recognition of the fact that the ring roads around the city centre and the flyovers and the underpasses have kind of scarred development of the city centre and hampered its growth, they haven't and are not doing enough to uh, counteract that. Secondly, landmark buildings. We need less of those and we need more creative zoning of uh, bits of the city centre which are um, underdeveloped. We need creative zoning of those so that um, small entrepreneurs, new business owners can go in and actually then create their vision of Birmingham as opposed to a top-down thing whereby we have the biggest library in Western Europe or the biggest shopping centre in Western Europe
1: so how i hear you crying can i be featured on the city metric podcast well there are there are two ways um both of which are pretty low tech um we do have an account set up with a thing called SpeakPipe. if you google city metric Speakpipe, you should be able to leave a message for us there uh, that's pretty limited though we have very limited disk capacity and it only lets you record 90 seconds at a time or you can just record us on your phone and send us that so if you can get in touch tell us about your city
3: So our map of the week this week is uh, very related, actually, to the subject of ghost cities. Um, I think, as we were kind of saying before, this question of whether they are being filled or not is kind of a bit unclear. And the Chinese government isn't hugely keen on doing vast reports on all the empty cities they've been building. It's funny because they're Um, normally so
1: transparent. I know, yeah, Yeah.
3: completely out of character. Um, But some researchers from Baidu, which is kind of, it's it's sort of the equivalent of Google, I suppose, um, and is used by huge numbers of Chinese people. Um, did quite an interesting piece of research, um, basically mapping areas where there weren 't people doing searches on Baidu essentially, so what they did was they compared satellite maps um, which appeared to show urban areas and then if there wasn 't search traffic coming out of those places, they kind of they um, basically concluded that those were either ghost cities which were under under development or just still empty, or else occasionally they thought it might be that this was like a tourist area which was empty at certain times in the year um, and yeah so what they' they kind of put together this map um and they they reckon they find found about fifty large ish urban areas which seem to be empty and they they kind of admit themselves as um some limits to this report, in that obviously there might be areas where there's people with less internet literacy or there could be kind of other reasons why um there's less traffic coming out of certain places but I think it's still an interesting finding, and it does show that there's a lack of knowledge about this that kind of people like wade are some of the only people really keeping tabs on what's going on with these places
1: it is just i mean wade has, has said that you know the ghost cities is a misleading term and it's often misunderstood in the west but nonetheless it is kind of crazy just to think that you can have these entire cities that are kind of invisible that you know mm. people just don't realize they're they're there for the most part but yeah i suppose in 10-15 years a lot of these places are going to be populated. They're going to be yeah and places I mean, you're trading with.
3: There's yeah. kind of an analogous story about um, the financial crash in Europe and actually in places like Madrid or Ireland, you've got these housing estates which were built in the boom years and then were never filled. And like with those, the story is these decayed places which were never finished and will never be populated. So I think the economy is quite an important story here as well, that if China continues to rapidly urbanise and be quite economically successful, I think these places won't be stories of disaster but it only takes the scales to tip for the, for that to kind of change and i think what's interesting as well so the, the baidu uh, research is quite funny because they only reveal the names of 20 of these places because they don't want to um basically threaten the real estate company's chances of selling the other ones <laughs> to people because obviously once something's called a ghost city you, it, you cause to mind kind of derelict buildings and stuff which isn't necessarily true that there aren't photos in china coming out of these unfinished falling down estates by any means they're just places that are still empty. Um, so there is a kind of stigma attached to that and you wonder if us talking about it all the time might actually make it harder for, for them to fill them.
1: Well, um, assuming... Sorry, if so. <laughs> yeah, assuming we haven't accidentally crashed the world economy, then uh, we'll be back in two weeks. you've been listening to skylines the city metric podcast it was presented by john elledge and barbara speed and produced by Royful brown our theme music is dust from the stars by charlie charles you also heard The Weather by Destinazione Altrove Trove and "Embryonic Waves, composed by Matthew Reitzel. All music in the show was licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously, and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps, and geography you could possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and on Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, well, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening. This is a Manhattan-bound
0: B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street.
2: Mind the gap.
0: 내리실
2: <laughs> 문은?